Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to author, speaker, and coach, Brett Bartholomew. tuned into this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So really pleased and excited to get on Brett for another episode on the on the podcast. So as we uh, as we laugh about, I don't know if it's the third, the fourth, the fifth. We've done quite a few um, a few podcasts over the last couple of years. So it's been a, it's been quite a big gap since the last one, which has been good because Brett's been ultra busy with the launch of the book, uh, the launch of the online course. Uh, development of the brand, multiple brands. So it was great to get him on for an update in on what he's been doing over the last year or two. So in this episode, as with Brett and the other episodes that I've done with him, it's not about um, kind of training philosophy. We go a little bit deeper on things. Um, we talk about entrepreneurship in the strength and conditioning world um, and what needs to be, maybe needs to be taught more in universities with regards to uh, with regards to building businesses. We talk about Brett's personal brand, how that's developed over the last couple of years um, and some other really interesting topics that are kind of a passion of mine. Uh, Brett's use of so- social media, the positives and negatives that he sees in different platforms that he uses and why he navigates to certain ones for certain things, which is really interesting and something that you don't, you just don't get information like that. Um, from a lot of people but Brett's definitely one that you do get that um, kind of inside info from so I know you'll enjoy this podcast um, really looking forward to, uh, to delivering it but just before we do get into this episode I want to say a big thanks to Vald Performance for sponsoring this episode today so if you haven't heard of Vald Performance they are the guys behind the Nordboard, the Groin Bar and the all new Human Track so if you haven't heard of either of them three products, visit valdperformance.com uh, or follow them on Twitter at valdperformance. So their all new human track system is a motion capture system which integrates the Xbox Connect and four IMUs worn on both wrists and both ankles. So human track has been initially validated against the gold standard in Vicon with some really positive initial results with some more to come, which will be openly available via the Val Performance website when they do become available. So if you, like I said, if you are interested in getting to know about any of them three products, visit valdperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at valdperformance. Also sponsoring this episode today is Force Dex. So big thanks to Force Dex for their continued support of the podcast. And if you are looking for a force plate hardware and software solution, visit forcedex.com. But also have a little look at episode 139 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So that's at strengthofscience.com forward slash 139, where co-owner of Forstech, Dr. Daniel Cohen, goes into a lot of detail with regards to all aspects of jump monitoring. Um, it's certainly not a sales pitch for Forstex, but you can get a real understanding of the capability and ease of use of Forstex uh, as re- with regards to the, the software. So if you are interested, Forstex.com is their website and follow them on Twitter at Forstex. 
So without further ado, over to the episode with Brett Bartholomew. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this is a part four, maybe part five, who knows, but Brett Bartholomew on the uh, on the podcast for this episode. So welcome to the podcast again, Brett. Part, part 12. You're the only one that will actually have me on podcasts anymore, Rob. So, I mean, that's how that, that's how that keeps working. No, I'm glad to be on, man. Nice talking to you. Nah, it's great to have you on, mate. Great to have you on. Um, so anyone that doesn't know who you are, or actually probably best to start with um, a bit of background on yourself and then kind of bring us up to date with what's been going on over the last year. Obviously, it's been very busy for you, as is every year by the by the sounds of it. Um, but li- yeah, a little update from uh, last time we spoke. Yeah, I don't remember that. You know, I think it's actually been a while. It's probably been the biggest yeah, stretch since. Uh, so yeah, I'm a strength and conditioning coach based out of Atlanta. Uh, my past includes experience both in the team setting and private sector. Um, I am an author and an adjunct professor and then a coach. And so I spend, you know, a good amount of my week just doing normal coaching responsibilities like many of the listeners. Uh, on the weekends, I'll travel and speak uh, some. On the evenings, I'm an adjunct professor for uh, a university in St. Louis, Missouri or near St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, my book, Conscious Coaching, is used as a subject matter uh, slash text material for the course. It's geared towards helping uh, aspiring coaches and, and people that are currently coaches and undergrad and graduate students as well. Um, continue to learn more about the social uh, science side of things as it pertains to coaching. Uh, it, it goes hand in hand. It's a 16-week course. It goes hand in hand with much of my uh, online course at artofcoaching.com. And then I'm also the senior vice president for a non-for-profit called Movement to Be here in the States. It's based out of New York. And it goes all across the United States helping kids in like impoverished communities learn more about sport, play, and the benefits of physical activity. Let's talk about the book very, very quickly. Did the, was the book? Did you think the book would be as popular as it's become? No, I mean, uh, <laughs> no, obviously not. Obviously not. But yeah, did you think you had some? Did you think there was something really something there that you could dive into and become really known for that? Known for that? Well, I, or, I mean, I definitely felt there was something there. I mean, no, nobody, nobody does something as insane as writing a book, especially you know, I'm somebody that I I enjoy interacting primarily through conversation. It's also how I find the greatest clarity. Uh, you know, I'm a kinetic oriented person. I don't really like to sit. And so, you know, it's really, it's charming when you read about these authors and people that, you know, have their morning routine and they sit down at 9am with their cup of coffee and they, you know, their MacBook pro and their music in the background. And they just write, 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 write. Like not, that wasn't really my life when I wrote that book. Uh, it was, you know, coach all day, come home, sit in a crappy apartment in Los Angeles and write from 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. because that was the only time when like traffic noises weren't blowing you out of the water in L.A. Um, you know, it was also during my I think that, that during the course of writing the book, I moved twice, got married, and uh, yeah, I like started my own business. So um, I definitely think there was something there. I didn't think it would take off quite like it would. On the other hand, it's been an interesting social experiment in and of itself to see kind of the polarizing nature. Um, you know, I think it went from there were a lot of people that had never heard of me to then a lot of people heard of me. And then there's this whole faction of people that never even met me, but hate me because they're tired of hearing about me or the book. And so that was interesting. You know, like I, I distinctly remember one message I got from somebody that was like, Hey, I was going to write, I was going to get your book. Um, but then I figured you have enough people on your bandwagon. And I don't know if, how he meant that, but it was basically saying like, 
I'm not going to read your book because it seems like other people are talking about it, uh, which I, I don't really understand that. But I, I can say this, like Ryan Holiday, one of my favorite authors, it's absolutely true. You know, for every 100 people that like something you do, there's definitely going to be 10 just mathematically that hate you, even if they don't know you. So that's been interesting, you know, like, and you and I have talked about this before. I do think we have a profession that is a little bit crab in the bucket. You know, I think even when I came up, you were told not to be on social media. You were told not to do any of this stuff. It's, uh, and I've talked about this on your podcast before. It's stuff that I abided by for a long time. And then you start getting to the point where you think you have a responsibility to kind of give back to a field that's given all of us so much. So start sharing a little bit more, you know, do a book. Um, but the minute it does well, you know, then come all the chirps of, oh, you're a sellout. Oh, you're big time. Oh, you're not a coach anymore. You're a lecturer, you know, and I think that part's really interesting. Uh, when in reality, you know, like coaching, you're an educator. Like I find that actually going around and speaking and lecturing helps me in my coaching and vice versa. You know, if I didn't coach, I wouldn't have much to talk about. Um, and I think we'd just be kind of in that uh, death by paper cut scenario. We are at so many clinics where you sit there and hear the usual, <clears throat> this is why we hang clean. This is why we squat. We believe in accountability, GPS, you know, just the same kind of redundant things over and over where, you know, there's a lot of good science behind the social endeavor side of coaching, you know, and, and it's an interesting space because, you know, how many books have been written about speed? And that's great. Like we need to keep doing that. You hear me say that again and again. Uh, but we've completely ignored the science behind the art of coaching. And, and there's there's people doing fantastic work there. When I say we've completely ignored it, I mean the greater scale of strength coaches. I'm not including academics in that. Um, you know, there, there's good research on it. But I think a lot of times coaching is uh, kind of presented as this uh, process where everything happens in synchronicity. It happens exactly how we lie, lay it out. Like, and that's, that's divorced from the reality that we all face. Coaching is chaos. You never know how people are going to respond. You've got to get egos in line. If not the athletes you work with, the people in check. Um, so it's been nice to see everybody, including universities here in the States. And then books have been translated into six or seven languages now, which for a self-published book was something else I never expected. Um, and hopefully it inspires somebody to write a far better book than mine and, and continue to take this information further. So that's, that's the hope. How have you, how have you dealt with the, <clears throat> excuse me, how have you dealt with that side of things in terms of been known, been more known, been known for the book, been known for the, that kind of niche, um, area, but then people get on your back and saying, like you said, sell out and all them kind of things. How have you dealt with that? Has that been, has that been tough? I, I, I think it was. I think it's a process. You know, at first, you know, I almost, I had this guilt associated with the book doing well. You know, I almost felt like I had to apologize. Um, and that was early on, you know, because there's a lot of things of saying like, wait a minute, like, what, what, I, how am I doing something wrong by trying to do something that's helpful and, you know, this, that or whatever. But then you just start, I think what I did is I, I reached out to a lot of other authors, um, people that have written books far more successful than mine and asked them if they went through the same thing. And one of them was a Harvard business professor. Another one was a guy in astrophysics. Another one was a comedian, you know, just people I found their contacts and I asked them, I said, Hey, you know, do you deal with this? And it was astoundingly common. You know, the Harvard business professor was like, you know, I was 30 years old when, when I wrote my first book and, um, People thought that, you know, what I heard is nobody your age should be writing a book. What do you have to tell us? And I could relate to him because I was, I think, 29 or 30 when Conscious Coaching came out. Uh, well, when I was finishing it up, I came out. I'm 32 now. So it came out technically when I was 31. Um, 
the, the comedian said, you know, and I, and I think strength and conditioning is a lot like comedy in the music industry. He said it was brutal. He's like, you know, I, I came up playing in the, or uh, performing in these comedy clubs. Everybody's trying to make it. Everybody gets paid crap or sleeping in closets, basements, you know, whatever. And then my book did well and I happened to hit a break and all of a sudden I had a bunch of people that were mad at me, but all of them had, all of them had a common theme is that it was kind of a transcendence for them. So like, even though they may have lost supporters on one end of the spectrum, the ones they gained that had put equal skin in the game to theirs um, or had pushed themselves to kind of another level, like they got so much more out of that relationship. Right. And so I think you realize when you, when you talk to other people that do these things, like they've all lived it, they've all been through it. And I think I just had to get, I, I didn't know that that was normal. I, you know, and you come to the realization that social media and all that stuff is a full contact sport. I mean, it's a realm where people can see something you say, get retweeted a hundred times. And then that, for that reason alone, they hate you, you know? And, um, I, th- I think coaches have a lot. I mean, listen, but the reality is, is we're all, for, many of us are former athletes. If we weren't former athletes, we're very competitive in other ways. I think we channel that in some pretty unique ways. I talk about it in numerous presentations as well as the book. Um, you know, schadenfreude, which is a scientifically like validated construct that says, you know, when you feel threatened by somebody, when you feel, um, yeah, like, yeah, just like somebody stepping into your, uh, domain or, or competing directly for scarce resources, we like, um, as human beings to see those people struggle and fail. Um, you know, and so that's interesting. Of course, that's not everybody. I mean, the overwhelming support has been, I think the biggest shock was people from all over the world sending pictures of the book, you know, like, I got, a, I got one the other day, a guy sent me one from Rome and then another one was from Sicily. And I, and I try to post those on social media, not to self aggrandize, but just like, that to me is cool. I mean, at 16 years old, I was almost dead in a hospital. So, you know, at 32 to see somebody with a copy of my book on the other side of the world, like I'm not going to apologize for that. And I'm not going to feel like I did something wrong because, you know, whatever. And uh, so it, it's helped me grow a lot, but at this point, man, I just gotta laugh any of it off. You know, the majority of people, if anybody's negative, it's usually because they don't know you, or you know, like that one quote says, "Dogs bark at what they can't understand." You know, absolutely. So you, you I think once you're coming out with coloring books and action figures and a movie deal and all that, then people can get really mad. But until that time, I'm I'm just a strength coach. It's written a book. I don't think like I'm claiming cold fusion or anything. <laughs> So you mentioned there about your brand, and that's something that I've been, as we've spoke about before. So it's um, something that you, you don't know. It's that's it's really uh, impressed me in terms of the, in terms of how the brand feels when you pop up on or one of your channels pops up on social media. What's what inspiration and where did you go for advice on that, or did you? Is it just something that you've kind of learned as you've gone along in terms of building the brand and the the kind of the, the constant message that's been this fed and then the look of the website, everything kind of seems to be very much legit. Um, not just as if you've kind of chucked it online and, and there's actually a thought behind it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's evolved. I mean, there's been things that, you know, there's been confusion early on because, you know, there was, there were jobs that I had that didn't allow you to have a website or anything like that. Um, so when I got, you know, when I first got out of that position and I could have a website of my own, you know, I jumped on the first thing I could get. Cause you know, it's like real estate. You can look around for a house or an apartment, but you're not going to get the one you want. And so there were things that I wanted at first and I couldn't get it. So I just went with Bartholomew strength, right? Like that was, it wasn't a facility I was going to open. It wasn't anything special. It was just like, Hey, if somebody searches my name, I should probably own a domain associated with my name. And I couldn't get, 
prepperthalmy.com. Some guy in Iowa that I actually think ironically is like dead uh, has it. I've been trying to get it for seven years. We can't read like nobody can get a hold of this guy. Like no web domain company has been able to get a hold of him. Um, I tried other derivations like the guy that had artofcoaching.com wanted like $20,000 for it, which was absurd. So early on, you know, I had Bartholomew Strength and then Conscious Coaching came out. And then, you know, my goal was I, I've always really been turned off by people, uh, not not people, but like I've always been turned off when businesses try to do too much to promote a name. So I was like, you know, I don't really want Bartholomew Strength. I want it to be about something bigger than me. So like uh, the bridge, the bridge human performance, because bridging that gap, you know, it, it is an important phrase. And something that was said to me when I went and had the opportunity to speak for Microsoft they're like, it's nice to have somebody from the sporting community bridge the gap with what we're doing with technology and business. Um, you know, and then, uh, you know, I thought about that a little bit and then how everything else could evolve. And really what I'm moving towards now is, you know, the bridge is where I train like out of my athletes and stuff like that through, but art of coaching is really something that I've, I've started to own. I finally just bugged that guy to oblivion where we worked out a far, a far more fair price than $20,000 us. Um, I think he just realized that, you know, there, it's a very niche market that was ever going to approach him about it. And he was probably losing money holding on to it. So, you know, I finally got that. And so the point is, though, is like I, I paid attention to brands over the years. I think it's interesting because it's a form of communication, right? Like you look at Beats by Dre. It's what are you communicating? It's simple. It's straightforward. It's to the point. You know, Apple is always the popular example. It's clean. It's straightforward. So, you know, and then, of course, I was with Athletes Performance when they turned into Exos. So I was in the room. Uh, when a lot of those conversations around branding took place, and these were things that I had never even thought about at the time, but you're hearing people talk about the, you know, the necessity of a brand to tell a story and be a reflection of your values. And so that's, I think the core of what I'm trying to distill is to me, a brand should be a ref- like an extension of, excuse me, values, not vanity. And every, every letter, every image, every shape, every symbol, a symbol tells a story. And so you have to think about that, but yeah, it's, it's definitely been a learning process and, and continues to be one as, as I evolve it. And then you never know what your future is going to hold. So, you know, you, you have to think about those things going forward. And, I, and I'd say this even to your crowd that's probably already fast forward or thought about turning this off. You know, a lot of you may think that you're never going to have to deal with branding. I know I was like that. I never want to do a branding, marketing, any of this stuff. I just want to coach. Um, but you need to protect your flank in this field. I don't think it's any secret that, you know, the narrative right now is about how unstable the field of strength and conditioning can be from a job market standpoint. And, you know, there's a couple of things that I think people don't talk about enough and it's perception, professionalism, and prudency. You know, you have to be prudent and have some kind of eye on the future. Like how silly is it if we sit here and say, oh yeah, when we're programming, well, uh, you know, we begin with the competition date and start back, you know, you always begin with the end in mind. Well, how many people do that in terms of their career? And even I didn't, you know, you get in the field, which most of us get into it because we're passionate about training, which by the way, is the wrong reason to get into the field. You know, like I, I don't think just because you're passionate about something that that necessarily means that you're good at it. Cal Newport talks about that all the time. He says that, you know, when you do something because you're passionate about it, like you're typically going into it thinking like, what can the world or what can this realm give me? Because it gives you a lot of pleasure. You enjoy it. Where if you think of it as a craftsmanship kind of perspective instead of a passion perspective, as a craftsman, you're thinking, what can I provide the world or, or the craft in general? So I think it's concerning that a lot of coaches get into it because they're like, yeah, I love training or I love the body. Like that's, that's good. That's enough to get you interested in it, but you've got to love some stuff beyond that. 
And then you've also got to make sure that you're aware of the realities that very few elite jobs exist. Nothing's guaranteed. You could end up on your ass tomorrow. And uh, if you're not going to think at all about your own branding, your own strategy and your own essentially safety net, you know, you're, you're in for a rude awakening at some point. And I learned that the hard way too. Have you ever thought about doing anything else? Uh, as a if I would have done anything else, it would have been a criminal profiler without doubt. Um, if you ask fifth grade Brett, like I want to be an assassin, specifically Sub-Zero from Mortal Kombat. Uh, you know, I want to be a professional athlete growing up like everybody. But if I didn't do this job today, I'd be a criminal profiler for sure. And then I like aspects of the business. I mean, I, I never, I abhorred that stuff before, but everybody in my family is an entrepreneur or was in some kind of finance. And, you know, so that stuff's been ingrained. My brother owns a couple restaurants and, and he loves that stuff. But the, the problem with business for me is it's very hard to find people that want to work and get their hands dirty. Um, it's the number one reason I haven't opened a facility of my own to this point is because, you know, I don't know how it is in the UK, but, you know, here in the States, you open a facility and you'll have people that will come on to work with you and do all this until the next big university job or pro job opens. And then it's like they'll, they'll flee to that any moment, you know, and then eventually they don't realize that the majority of people in those positions only last maybe two to three years or they get burnt out eventually. And then they're trying to do the private sector. So it's a whole lot of, it's a whole lot of irony, you know? And so, uh, but yeah, I'd be a, if, to answer your question more succinctly, if I wasn't doing this, I'd probably be a criminal profiler. Yeah. How about you? What about you, man? You gotta, you know, you do a good job of asking questions on this, but you never divulge your deep, dark secrets. So what would you, uh, <laughs> be doing right now? Mm, what would I be doing? Um, I've, I, I thought for a while, before starting uh, in pro football that I would follow my dad into architecture. Um, My my brother's gone that way, so they work together. Um, My dad does the kind of intricate stuff. Um, Still actually on a drawing board. He hasn't migrated onto the computer yet. Um, (laughs) But, mate, some of the the drawings are uh, fantastic. But, yeah, so I thought I would kind of migrate that way. Um, But... It was, yeah, as soon as football took off, it, well, as I say, took off. Um, as soon as that kind of started, that kind of just fell into the background. But like I say, my brother's gone that way. Um, and property was always something, given the architecture uh, link with my dad and my brother, that was always something that I wanted to pursue and still do want to pursue. So my brother's gone down a route of, um, he wanted to get like everyone, like, get properties and create um, equity in a property to buy, buy a second and buy a third and buy a fourth and whatnot, quickly finding out that you actually need some cash up front to be able to do that. So what he's what he's doing is um, he's sourcing opportunities for people, uh, for investors, and then selling opportunities to them rather than doing it himself, which has become quite interesting. Um, and, and I bought a property when I was um, 19 with a friend, um, who was also getting going in this, and we still got it. Um, so that's something I'd like to I'd like to take up. And given the the kind of family interest in that side of things, I think it would be it'd be a natural thing to tap into uh, into their knowledge and stuff. So I think that would yeah that would be I think mine. Um, good question. I like it. I like it. That's good. I, I think that's I think you're going to see this. If you had to ask a prediction, like you know, I think in the next. I think in the next 10 to 15 years, especially strength and conditioning is going to evolve dramatically uh, globally, at least in terms of, of viewpoints of common strength coaches. Again, grow, like I'm not that old, but like just as a GA, I just remember to get like 
completely defined by stay in the trenches, grind, shut your mouth, try to outlast everybody, even if you got to suffer, even if you're taking what, you know, a 2020 position, which jokingly is, you know, often referred to as working 20, 20 hours a day for 20K a week, uh, for 20K a year, you know, all this stuff. That, like, and, and you buy into it, you know what I mean? And there's value behind it. It teaches you to like, you know, just go in there and, and make sure you're in this for the right reasons for sure. But it can also, it, it doesn't mean that it's right for you just because you can outlast it, right? And so I have tons of people that I know that came up around the same time as I did, you know, what happened, that aren't even in strength and conditioning anymore. And it's not for lack of love of it. If you ask them, like, they love training. They love, they still go, you know, two of them still go to strength and conditioning conferences, but they're just like, they had to get out because they had a wife and kids. And they were like, hey man, like we were turning like 30 and we just couldn't provide anymore. And I can't have my kid and two dogs in an apartment and, you know, whatever. And, and somebody could snicker and say, well, they should have planned better. But that's, that's not the case, man. Like nobody can do anything. You know what I mean? Like, and, and we're taught like, hey, get your education, get all the certifications, make sure you make sure you have this, make sure you have that. But you're still not guaranteed a job. You know, like I, somebody posted the other day on Facebook, like I think there was a job over there in the UK that was asking for people that have minimum of a master's degree and they were paying the, you know, basically what would have been 40000 the equivalent of $40,000 over there. I don't know what the exchange rate is right now. And, you know, the person was like, you kidding me? Like, we're supposed to accept jobs for forty k if we have a master's degree and all these certs. But we've been lulled into that sense of like, since it's such a volatile market, like we've been lulled into believing like, hey, getting more degrees and getting more certs will improve your chances. But has that worked? Has that, you know, to your knowledge, has that worked for most people? Negative. Certainly <laughs> not. Now I think this taboo topic of entrepreneurialism and, and just learning a little bit more about business. I mean, 10 years ago, we were talking more, oh, every strength coach should be like an ATC and learn more about this. And, you know, then it was every strength coach should also be a sports scientist, you know, and, and, and whatever. I really think every strength coach needs to learn more about business because you're a part of a business, whether you like it or not. I don't care if you work for Man U. I don't care if you work for a high school, you know, club or what have you, like you're a part of a business anywhere you go in this world. And if you don't understand it, then you're, you're relinquishing, you know, your right to, to, you know, put yourself in a better position and you can't, you can't whine about it if you're not going to do. So I just think in the next 10 years, hopefully it's a lot more positive, collaborative, and, and more importantly, just like open-minded uh, venture because, you know, entrepreneurs are, are, are educators and pioneers in their own right. And strength coaches could learn a lot from people that know how to take risks on that level. I know, I know I have, I know that like, that was a big shift in my thinking when I finally, you know, hung around more people that weren't just strength coaches that had outside interests, you know, because then they think about problems in unique ways where it's just like art, you stand too close to a painting and you can't make it out. You're too close to it. You've got to step back from it. And so I don't know. That's, that's what I think. So I think it's awesome that you're getting into to real estate. My wife's got a real estate license. She was a former strength coach. Same thing. Had a hard time finding work. Um, dabbled in the fitness industry for a bit. Wasn't her passion. So she started doing some other stuff more medically inclined. And now is, uh, a side piece is getting... Um, she's not a side piece. <laughs> like, as a side <laughs> thing for her, she's, she's doing a real estate license, you know? And we just, we never want our lives to feel like they're in the hands of somebody else or completely outside of our control. Like that's a sickening, it's a sickening feeling. And I felt like that before. Mm-hmm. I think I've mentioned it a couple of times on, on here. And the, the point came for me where I actually, 
actually wrote it down, and I always think that when things are, when things are playing in my mind for, for too long, best to best to write them down, best to write a list, always write a list. What do I actually want over the next 30, 40 years? And obviously getting a little bit deep here, but and I thought, can the route that I'm I think that I should be taking, um, can that offer, can I take all this all, all these boxes on this list? And very quickly it was no, I don't think it can. The, the, the chances are that I won't be able to do these things. So it was like, okay, well, what are the options? So the options there was obviously lots and and you you kind of you go through them and you, you you write more lists and I decided to go a slightly different route and take a, a job that was slightly um, you know left field in more of a, a more of a commercial sense and I felt that was the right thing because of the podcast and how much I had enjoyed um, the kind of building of that and learning how to fill in a tax return how to you know, where to go for accounting and all these kind of things that you just, like you say about the entrepreneurship, that that just, that stuff doesn't get, isn't leveraged into any sort of um, kind of business aspect of a degree or a master's. And I think it should be, and I'll, I'll probably come on to that a little bit later on, but, and I enjoyed that side of things and thought, okay, well, that interests me, the business side of things. So let's, let's roll with that and quickly realize that that could potentially lead to me being able to tick that uh, tick off that list that I made and it's just gone from there and, and looking back everything everything kind of makes sense in reverse and and things have kind of gone on from from there but it was that decision of okay what I, what lifestyle do I want and like you say can I do I want to live in a shitty flat and get 25k a year for the rest of my life like can I support a kid struggle um hopefully my wife or girlfriend at the time is going to earn more than me because if we're both on if one's on 20 and one's on 25 like that ain't going to raise a, a, a kid in the house that i want to live in the neighborhood that i want to live and have you know have kids and stuff so that was my first part of call what is that what was the actual lifestyle that i wanted and what what like i wanted to travel like uh, can i travel on that do i have the freedom to travel on that kind of money and that kind of um relationship with my employer like i'm gonna have 20 days a year max and it has to be taken in june so like is that gonna do what i wanted to do and no so that was my kind of starting block of of what i wanted to get out of life and and that was uh what four years ago three or four years ago so that was my that's my little journey and and unfortunately like you know i I think there's a lot of coaches that will probably hear what you're saying and, and you know you bring up finances and this and that. And then the, the rhetoric here in America, a lot of times is, well, we don't do it for the money. Like, and I don't know if it's wind up doll that like, they just pull that when they don't know what to say anything else. It's like, dude, like, wait a minute, who, just because I'm saying like, I want to make sure we can pay the bills means I'm doing it for the money. Like, what are you talking about? You know? And I just think it's been this de facto. And the, here's the funny thing. Nine out of 10 times, anybody I meet that says I don't do it for the money is in some cushy job where they're making like 300 to 500 K, you know, and that's no knock for they just haven't been in that kind of, you know, situation or it's been a while, but like nobody does this for the money. It doesn't mean that it doesn't matter though. Like I have a wife we want to have kids. We have medical bills. We have, you know, we have the same things that everybody else has. And so, um, and it goes back to this, you know, being a great craftsman, being a great coach, like, uh, of course it comes down to subject matter knowledge and, and firsthand experience and a whole host of things. But how do you take care of somebody else, your athletes or, or your organization or anything to the best of your ability? If you're, basic needs, uh, you know, like just sense of stability isn't taken care of. 
So I always try to bring that full circle, you know, when coaches discuss this, because, you know, here's the thing, you have a lot of people that listen to your podcast that are probably less than five years into coaching. You know, it's the type of individual that, and I've been this guy, right? Like they're in their car that they have your podcast and four other strength and conditioning podcasts on ritualistically to make sure that they don't miss, you know, one iota of the, of the latest debates, the latest research, the latest tips, what have you. And, and they're just absorbing and absorbing. And, and they're sitting here thinking like, one day I'm going to get this job and one day I'm going to be what a big name. And, you know, I hear this person say that and that's crap. And like, you got to applaud them to a degree because we need that hunger. We need that tenacity early on, but they also have to have the perspicacity to understand that life will change. Um, you'll start realizing that, you know, th- there's other things that come into play in your life. There's other things that come into play when you're going into an organization. A big thing that I study right now is, you know, what's termed as micropolitics uh, in, in social science literature that just talks about, you know, the power games and power struggles that often go on interpersonally um, and organizationally, whether it's part of a team, a business or what have you. Like, that's just as big a part of what you do down the road as, you know, knowing how to program a squat, you know, or or notice uh, or, or noting how to address acute chronic workloads or anything like that. And so, uh, you know, I just think it's important for people to know and we need more of a narrative through our field for older coaches to kind of maybe prod that younger generation to say, Hey, like by all means, like fixate to a degree, but you know, beyond a point, don't make the mistakes I did, you know, and, and, and understand that if you go into this dogmatically, it's going to affect your coaching and your career. And there is no career guide for us right now. Let's be honest. Like you can go to conferences and clinics, how much of that stuff like you alluded to is really discussed. It's not, you know, cause it doesn't put butts in the seats as much as a title that says ultimate speed training for the power athlete, you know what I mean? Or like uh, new developments in hamstring health, you know, or it's almost predictable now. It's almost predictable. And uh, we need a guide, like kind of a career guide to, to make us think about these kinds of things and, and do that. And it's something that, uh, you know, me and my team are working on because I get reached out to every day by coaches that are like, Hey man, I'm out of a job. Never thought I would be, I might have to do this. Like, you know, this is, what, what can I do? And I'm like, I have all the answers. I can tell you about my path, but it hasn't always been clean, um, you know, in terms of what you have to do. But I think it's huge and I think it's needed. I mean, w- would you agree? Do you think that, you know, the, the shift in terms of con ed needs to happen where we have, uh, you know, either events or we have resources that, that focus a bit more explicitly on, uh, on this stuff? So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Brett. So in part two, we discuss more about the not doing it for the money uh, scenario that many people drag up when um, when discussing the, the monetary values knocking around in the strength and conditioning community. Um, we discuss uh, books that have inspired Brett and some recommendations of books that people may dive into for, for different, um, different purposes. But just before we do get into part two, just want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So one thing that makes Fatigue Science uh, different to any other sleep tracking solution on the market is their biomathematical modeling in the background of the, the ready band, which is the hardware that you use and uh, that you wear on your wrist or the athletes wear on their wrist. And it's something that I've chatted about before on the podcast when talking about fatigue science. But if you listen to Ian Dunican's podcast, which I did quite a few episodes ago now, um, it talks about the biomathematical modeling um, in, in quite a lot of detail. But basically, the model where you can punch in your flight details when you need to be ready, whether that's a meeting for a business person, whether that's a 
a training session or competition. And the model basically works back and recommends when you need to be exposed to light, when you should be sleeping, when you should be exercising, etc. Gives you a nice, precise um, schedule for athletes and business people or coaches to follow uh, when flying across multiple time zones. So one was done for me. The model was was um, used, and I went to Australia with great success. Um, just a simple plan for me to follow, uh, which I did. So it was good. So if you want to know more about fatigue science, uh, fatiguescience.com, and on Twitter at fatigue science. So over to part two with Brett. Uh, hope you enjoy. What cracks me up is the not doing it for money. And one thing that I did enjoy was the Instagram post that you put up uh, probably over the weekend, start of the weekend, maybe Saturday, which was the round holiday article. Um, oh yeah, which yeah, I very much enjoyed that. I love, I love, I do love his uh, his writings. But um, what I did mention was that yes, people don't do it for the money, but um, once you actually get past a certain point of what you actually need for life for doing the basics a little bit on top of that is um obviously nice but after that it doesn't actually make that much difference and oftentimes it actually decreases someone's happiness um which kind of throws back into the face of the people that say you're doing it for the money you're actually doing just doing it just to feel comfortable and like you said before actually have that sense of security so you can actually have a relatively stress-free life that you're not going to get your house taken off you um so anyone who hasn't um was it on ryan's was it on his blog do you know yeah, yeah it, was on, it was wasn't it yeah well um, like, writer and i don't mean to hijack it but like write it you know <laughs> authors and writers that's such a perfect like con or comparison with strength coaches in the regards to that like why do we even need to say that? Like how many strength coaches do you know, like are so well off and like, or that how many people get into this field? And like, yeah, man, can't wait to buy the Maserati in a place on Lake Como. Like I've, I've yet to meet a strength coach that says that. So like, why do we have these like people that feel the need to be like, yeah, well, we don't do it for the money. I'm like, all right, man. Well, we're also not doing it so we can continue to, you know, just uh, fill our martyrdom complex either. Cause that, that's kind of what I came up with is, they were all, I mean, you just saw it a lot, you know, and I'm sure you still see it on social media to a degree. To a degree. I'm not as active on, I'm primarily active on Instagram. I just think it's a lot more, like if you're a coach, like it's easy to show examples of what you're talking about. So it's less ambiguous um, and it's easy to add a little context. And then it's not as much of a negative like echo chamber. Um, but the point being like, uh, now I lost my train of thought. I can't remember what I was trying to say. Um, I forgot where I even left off. But the point being, like, I just don't get, oh, yeah, like, everybody wanted to aggrandize, like, how how early they're waking up or the grind. or the, It's just, like, it's so tired. Like, you know, this has been going on for years. Like, move on. You know, now, now start thinking about answering the real question that everybody wants to debate about, you know, people, oh, how do you define the value of a strength coach? Well, I can tell you how you don't do it. You don't do it by acting like a bunch of, like, people that are, I'm right, you're wrong. Da, 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 da. I mean, like we, like watching us on social media is a joke. You know, like people, I said it the other day, somebody was like, you know, I feel like Twitter's turning into like a fortune cookie factory. And I was like, like, you, do you turn to Twitter for enlightenment? <laughs> it's not what it's for, man. Like it's for snap it, snapshot, snapshots and snippets. And, you know, and, and, and that's not saying that people shouldn't share things of value, but it's just saying that you need to have realistic expectations and just quit arguing. 
but you know, I, some of the, and this is something that, you know, I'd be interested in getting your take in, but I think people are focusing on the wrong things when they talk about when they're like, Oh, making our field better is about people understanding the value of a strength coach. For sure. I agree. What I don't agree with is this idea that they think that's going to happen through us educating sport coaches. Um, as if like all of a sudden we're going to be able to lead some mandate that sport coaches, some of the premier sport coaches in the world are going to have to get schooled on sports science and physical literacy. I mean, that may happen to some degree. And I know different areas of the country or of the world, like that's probably more of a practice, but here in the States, it's not a lot of times sport coaches, especially in American football, were former players that, you know, maybe didn't make it to the NFL and then got into coaching and were graduate assistants and then were assistants. And then they made their way to a head guy and, and what have you, but you know, people hear that or people want a governing body that can kind of like almost assign a credit score to strength coaches based off a combination of hard and soft skills to assess their value. But it's like, we can't even agree over research, let alone what we're going to pick five. We're going to pick the magnificent seven that we feel is going to go around the world and, and, <laughs> and, and all agree on who's, you know, my, my point being is that's all well intentioned and it's all good. And I, and, and I value that, but I think a lot of it starts with us cleaning up our own house and the perception. I don't think we really present ourselves as professionals. I think we're very argumentative and not always in the name of science. I think we're always contentious. Uh, I shouldn't say always. That's an absolute term. I think we're often contentious. Um, and I think coaches need to present. Listen, like you present yourself like what you are. Coaches are educators and they're managers. You know what I mean? Like we're not just workout people. And so there's a decorum that goes along with that. And there's a level of sophistication and I'll use that term purposefully that goes along with that. And I, I just don't think that, you know, the place of seeing people break flaming boards over their back before leading people out into the field isn't necessarily painting us in the light. That's going to allow us to say like, yeah, yeah. Hey, pay attention to us. Our field has that more value than you think. Like people look at our theatrics and they think, all right, workout guy, like why don't you just stick to motivating the players, you know? And that's, so it, it does go into behavior. I mean, you can look at that. There's a great book I read uh, not too long ago called uh, Crystallizing Public Opinion. And it was basically written by the father of propaganda. That, you know, And this was before, like, you know, a lot of advertising and things like that was, was used for mischievous purposes. But, you know, the guy just said, listen, you'd like to think that we um, we define, like we closely observe first and then define somebody but we don't, we often define them based off of what we see. And that's just the herd mentality. It's gone that way since the beginning of time. Like we're, we're easy to judge. We're easy to characterize. We're easy to kind of put people in boxes. Strength coaches have, have often been put in a box and have many of their associated compatriots. And we've now got to upgrade and upskill. Like we've, we've always had plenty of substance to what we do, but we need to work on the style in which we do it. If we want to be taken seriously, at least in my estimation, that's, that's part of it. Got to be good at what you do. Of course, craftsmanship matters, but we also need to upgrade the perception and our image of us in the public because we're not we're not taken seriously, and no amount of education is going to do that if people don't want to listen. You know, to oh yeah, you've had all this schooling. Oh yeah, you study this. Oh cool, you can tell me about rate coding. Awesome man. Like that's that. How many people care about that outside of our sphere? They need to know something else or or see your value demonstrated elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to, I'm going to have a shameless plug here, but the, the previous episode, the, the podcast I had on a head coach, one that had just recently been sacked from a third tier club here in England and his sports scientist who traveled uh, with him to that club from a, from a previous club in, in the first division, Scotland. And one thing that, so we did the podcast, ended up doing the podcast twice because one of the guys, Mike's 
was shit and whatever. Um, and but it was great to speak to them both twice. And it, I was kind of relieved that we could speak again because it was really good and really interesting. But one thing that I, I mentioned in the podcast very briefly, I probably mentioned it in the first recording more than the second, but what came clear to me after speaking with this head coach who had been a player as well, so played uh, in the second tier of English football for 200 plus games. So, uh, you know, good stint in the, in uh, as, as a pro, he explained things. And one thing that stood, stood out to me was his, when he first said, um, I asked him what, what made a good um, fitness coach. And he goes, well, to make a good fitness coach, sports scientist, S&C coach, whatever you guys want to call yourselves. Mm-hmm. And that stuck in my mind. That was one thing that he said that I didn't really pick up on at the time, but since listening back, that amused me, which speaks volumes in that he didn't know what, what it is. Well, yeah, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go on. I was just going to say, I, I, all of that stuff we do is a form of value signaling. You know, like, what should we call ourselves? What should the title be? You know, and that interesting kind of piece on Twitter where somebody was saying, you know, what's the name? I love Nick Grantham's response. Where he's like, you know, whatever fits with the organization or the team you're with, you know. And I, I just don't think that we need to spend our time worrying about what we're called. You know, like, no, it's no not. No one gives a shit. No one gives a shit. People don't give a shit. Rose? No, and like here's the thing. I went to the dentist the other day, and I asked the dentist, and I go, "Hey, do you guys ever bicker like with other dentists about how many wisdom teeth you pull? Like, do you uh, do you guys ever talk about what time you came into work and what time you leave?" He's like, "What the hell are you talking about?" And you know, <laughs> but like, it's so nobody cares. You know, what I mean, I don't care where my dentist went to school. I don't care, you know, who signed his letter of recommendation. Like I, you know, I'll know like excellence is self-evident and so is bullshit. Like I'm going to know after a couple of experiences there if it's good. And he could call himself a, a dental hygienist. He could call himself an oral specialist, which my wife might wonder what the hell I'm going to an oral specialist. For. <laughs> you know, like he calls himself whatever he wants. And like, it doesn't matter to me, man. Like just take care of my, like take care of the issue and let's go, you know? And yeah. so that's where you have to, and somebody, you know, it's funny you said that because somebody else said something to me the other day. They said, I can't remember who it was. They said they were on Twitter and like somebody, like a, a sport coach, um, and it was on, it was on your side of the world. They said that, man, like you, you, uh, and they said, I think they said health and fitness types love to talk, don't you? Because there was this massive like argument. And I think it was about exercise or load monitoring or, you know, it was, it was whatever. And so all these people got in there like, you guys love talking about it. And, and to a degree, it's true. Like, let's solve bigger issues now. All right, strength and conditioning is evolving. Here in the States, the private sector and high school markets continue to grow far faster than any other. Um, you know, I'm sure UK, like, people are, are starting to find alternative routes as well. So let's start bridging that gap. You know, let's start focusing less on what we call ourselves and more on, like, what can we do so that current and future generations of strength coaches can kind of balance uh, sustainability in their life while also being really good at what they do? You know, like how can we upgrade not not just the education side of things, but like more more importantly, like the adaptability side of things. Like, what are alternative things that coaches can do to 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 create stability in their lives? Because we can't control right now, like um, the chaos of our career. But you can again, you can create some kind of insurance policy that says, like, all right, if bad things happen, like I have this stuff to fall back on, and make it mutually beneficial to the field. You know, like make it mutually beneficial. And some people will be, oh, it's easy. You wrote a book. If you think that you make a lot of money writing a book, rude awakening. Rude awakening. <laughs> Not only did my wife and I have to take out a loan for me to do the book, but you don't make squat writing a book. 
you know, and so it's not easy for me to say like, um, but coaches have got to have, they've got to be educated and young coaches have to be educated on the realities that, you know, like quit coming up worrying about what club you're going to be with or what, like that stuff will take care of itself if you do the work and you do it well, you know, in the meantime, worry about like, you know, what you do in worst case scenarios and cover all your bases. So you're not naive. This is one thing that I've mentioned uh, an episode a couple of weeks ago um, about a, a university, uh, a, uh, it was a program director, I think, program leader of an MSC over here. And on day one of the MSC, it's actually before the student loan gets taken out of the student's bank account. Um, so they haven't actually paid anything on day one, on the induction day. And he just lays it out and says, this is how it's going to be. These are the, these are your expect, this is what you should be expecting. Please, if this isn't what you're expecting, leave. You haven't paid anything. You can just, this is for free. This advice is for free. But he said, I've done it for the last three years and no one leaves. No one leaves, which is, I'd, I'd love it if someone did. But yeah, he just lays it out on day one. These, this is, these are the kind of jobs that are going at the minute. And there was the uh, the Irish rugby one that came up, uh, which is going to be his um, job of choice uh, coming up in, in September when they do the induction week. Um, so, yeah. But one thing I was going to mention on the on the previous episode of the podcast with the uh, head coach, and it makes me laugh that – and I had this perception as well that the if you can get the head coach on side, you are absolutely just on the way to the moon. Like, that's it. Job done. You know, tools down, you've made it. But what he uh, explained, and this was, again, really, really interesting, was his thought process and his struggle mirrored his sports scientist, who also was on the call. And basically, the head coach was doing exactly the same thing. He's actually trying to get the players to do what he wanted them to do. Same as a sports scientist. The sports scientist was getting the players to do what he wanted them to do. And... The sports scientists were going to the head coach for budget and having that struggle and that battle to get what he wanted for his own salary and his, uh, his equipment for his gym or new gym or new this, new that. The manager was doing exactly the same with the CEO. He was wanting more money because they were doing well in the league. Uh, he wanted more facilities uh, at the training ground. But all, everything was gearing to get the players to do what they both wanted them to do. Obviously, two different things. But... And so the, the the power wasn't in the head coach's hands, and he admitted this. Like the most important people are the players, and yeah. in this, in the in the new job that he had, and then recently got um, relieved from, the players that he inherited didn't want to do what he wanted them to do, and that led to him getting the sack. Both of them getting the sack. So it became clear that yes, John, the sports scientist, had the ear of the manager or the head coach in in Robbie, but. Didn't actually make that much. It didn't actually make any difference because the players didn't want to do what either of them wanted them to do. So it fell on its ass, and they both unfortunately lost their jobs. And that that clicked in my my head that everyone's talking about getting the head coaches and getting the technical coaches on board. Mm, yeah, yes, definitely do that. But it's the players that hold the key, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was a big piece, even why I did the online course bought in, like just saying like, you've got, there's one common trait that everybody throughout history, regardless of whether they're painted as a good leader or a bad leader or anything else, but like effective leaders of all kinds of every domain have one thing in common above all else. They're all highly trusted. Mm -hmm. 
bottom line, you know, like, and, and, and trust isn't, I get sick and tired of the, like, here's one thing that did irritate me to go back to one of your early questions about the book. One thing that did irritate me though, um, is when people started kind of, all of a sudden you saw this influx of people being like, great coachings about relationships and charisma and warmth. And those aren't lies. Uh, it's true. But like it also, I had some people that thought that that was inspired by my book and that's not what my book is. You know, the book isn't, isn't about this ideological fact that like, Oh, it's just warmth and empathy. Like I actually wrote the book in opposition of that. Cause I got tired of, you know, all these leadership books that are kind of like warm and fuzzy and idealistic and, just be a good leader with good habits. Like I straight up say in the book, sometimes you have to be Machiavellian. Sometimes you have to leverage a whole host of dark uh, uh, traits that aren't always socially acceptable in today's, you know, ever sensitive society. Um, you gotta, you know, sometimes you gotta use conflict because creating, uh, you know, crossing wires can create more sparks. Um, but I did, you know, it, it seemed like for a while people were interpreting and I almost wonder if that was part of the backlash of it, you know, in, in the small group of individuals it was like, People think like one guy I remember on Twitter, he, he was like, uh, it was Twitter, Instagram. He was like, you know, I think people talking about the art of coaching are really hiding from the science because the science is much harder to master. And I think they were like, they thought they were being, you know, pretty witty, but they just got like blasted because <laughs> I don't think anybody would sit there and say that mastering, first of all, like you can't fall into this agenda. Like you gotta be careful on social media, people steering agendas. And it's funny, you talk about, uh, you talk about one topic and people think you're demonizing another. So like this guy was trying to make an argument now about what's, what's harder, uh, the art or the science. And like, that's a stupid argument. You know, you can't fall into that. Like, cause we have to do them both and they're all, they're both. But like, if you think that the sociology and psychological piece is easy to run to, like, I, I, I think you would have a lot of very interesting discussions with professors around the world at various universities you know, or um, Nobel Prize winners like no, uh, Daniel Kahneman and, you know, Richard Thaler. Like, you're going to tell them that human behavior is an easy one to crack. Um, so, but the, the, the kind of, just going back to your point, like getting them to trust you and getting them full on board is not, is not as easy as most people would think. Um, you know, I have some athletes that like to get them to do what I need them to do. If you heard me talk to them the way that I did, you, you, you might, you might lose <laughs> some kind of respect for me because sometimes I have to <laughs> and talk to them how a certain family member would talk to them and just like, you know, I can't say it on the air, but there's sometimes where you got to get on, you know, and I think that's, I think that's been lost in part of our society because like it's, it's not a socially inclined world anymore. You know, people can connect without being connected and um, it's very odd, but here's something that like, if I have to leave just one nugget on this topic, you know, and then I'll shut up is, you know, trust is the only post, like, let me rephrase. Trust is a scarce commodity in a post-scarcity world. And what I mean by that is if you want to watch a video right now, pop open Netflix, Hulu, you know, stream something. If you want to listen to music, cool, Pandora, Spotify, trust ain't that easy, you know? And it certainly doesn't come from you being like, hi, Rob, love your work. Everything you do is amazing. Rob, like, that's ingratiating. That's not honesty. You know, honesty is not always what you want to hear ask anybody that's been married over 10 years. Um, so anyway, I think, I think that's it. We have to be very, very, very careful of the narratives that people out there on social media try to spin 
just because they may be ta- somebody's talking about a topic they're not comfortable with or they're not knowledgeable with. And sorry, <laughs> it's, it, it's something. It's something that I would um, actually like to do, and I'm going to do it a couple of universities. That that university in particular that I mentioned is actually go and just do a little talk about other options coming out of a MSc with um, training conditioning. So yeah, I'm good. That's that's one of my on my hit list for September and October. Yeah, I think that's great. That's well needed. Yeah, which I'm actually looking forward to. So um, that that'll be cool. Um, one thing that I want to ask you before I let you go, because I know time's getting on. Um, you've mentioned a couple of books. You've mentioned uh, you didn't mention uh, the book, but you mentioned Cal Newport. So yes. yeah, you've read a couple of his books. I read Deep Works, Cal, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, you mentioned crystallizing public opinion, and yeah. you mentioned Ryan Holiday quite a few times. That's definitely not going to be for everybody. No. You know what I mean? Like that's and that's something important to say. Like, not all these books are for everybody. You know. Um, yeah, but yeah, that that was a. I, I loved it. I thought it was great, and the historical implications uh, in it were phenomenal. I actually heard about that book through another book that I'd read called The Fish That Ate the Whale, which was probably about one of the most interesting historical figures I've researched in some time. Russian Jewish immigrant Samuel Zamuri, who owned United Fruit, which I think at the height of its uh, financial like prowess was uh, a company bigger than that of Apple even uh, in today. And I'd like to give people a frame of reference, Apple is thought to soon become the first trillion dollar company in human history in the world. And so, but this guy was, uh, uh, and they make it a point like to, he was a Russian Jewish immigrant that literally came and took on a company of that size, beat them at their own game. And then basically made that organization better. And again, not anything done at that scale isn't always done through, you know, positive habits and thinking there's some dark stuff in there too, but that's where I learned about crystallizing public opinion. It was, I thought it was a phenomenal read. Mm-hmm. Is there any other books that you've come across recently that you'd, like to share? If not, you know, my reading slowed down a bit just because right now I'm working on, I'm co-authoring another book um, that I've got a tight timeline for. And I find that if I, if I read too much while I'm writing, it can become, it's just, it's a bit tough because you're, you always feel like you, Oh, that's an interesting idea. I'll add that in, or that's an interesting, let me explore that. And it's actually something I struggled with when doing conscious coaching that that book was originally about 120 more pages. And then we had to reduce it significantly. Um, uh, but I'm trying to think if there was another one, there was one that I finished. Um, uh, I would say Ryan holiday's perennial seller was probably one of the best books I've read in the past two years, you know, and of course I could go on and on about like the undoing project and, you know, books like thinking fast and slow. And like on my course, I give like 150 different books that I've read, um, in the resources that I think are cool, but like, um, perennial seller is what helped me get, get past a lot of the feelings associated with creating, like you mentioned earlier, you know, and, and the book is about so much, but in it, you know, Ryan holiday addresses, you know, how like people feel like, Oh, it's bad to advertise or promote. And he's specifically talking about, you know, anything you create for him, that's books. And he's like, wrong. If you have an idea that you think can help somebody in any way, shape or form, and you do not market it or promote it, you're doing them a disservice. It's about how you go about doing those things. So he talks about just some of the falsities of, you know, how people think of self-promotion and 
you know, like all that stuff's not created equal, you know, just like not every exercise that we have in a program is created equal. Sometimes it's appropriate for, for those we're working with. Sometimes it's not, um, you know, and he also just talks about the realities of how hard the creative process is. I wish if I had one book to, re- I wish I would have read, um, before I wrote my book, it would have been that, um, it just wasn't out then. So perennial seller is something that I think every coach needs to read another good book. And I will, I will just skim the parts of it because the author reached out to me. He seemed like a really nice guy. Um, but a number of strength coaches that I've referred it to just based off my early things said that it was game changing for them was real artists. Don't starve by Jeff Goins. Um, real artists don't starve. I probably shouldn't plug his book like that. He's supposed to send me a free copy. Didn't I bought it. And now I'm promoting his book for him. Uh, but I just, I think strength coaches need to hear stuff like that because we're taught, at least I know I was, you know, you shut your mouth, you take what you're given in this field, you know, and not just at the beginning, in the long term. And you, you know, we're a blue collar prat. Like it's, we're prat. It's funny, we're prideful in our humility sometimes, I think, as strength coaches. And that can be really dangerous. That can almost be more dangerous than being arrogant, in my opinion. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. And I think um, just the title, Hopefully, it, it means it lives up to expectation. I'll, I'm, I'm going to look into that 100%. But one, one thing that I'm, uh, I'm reading at the minute is um, Richard Branson's second autobiography, which is a little bit left field and it's quite lighthearted, but incredible read if anyone's interested in that type of thing. Um, just his kind of art of delegation and, and what, he's, what he's built on so many different fronts. Uh, from banks to airlines to, you know, uh, health clubs. So, yeah, that's that's one from my end that I'm reading at the minute that I, yeah, I can't get enough of. Yeah, Branson, I'll have to check that one out. Thanks for the input. It's, it's great. I mean, it popularizes opinion, especially over here, um, given his many public appearances, um, some good, some not so good, which he definitely admits in the book. Um, but yeah, very interesting character and openly admits that he's not the guy behind all this. Like he's at the, the top of the tree to, to a certain extent, but he's just the guy with the ideas and he puts people in place who can execute and he just guides the ship. Everyone else runs the, runs the thing. So that, that's a, that's an interesting, uh, topic that, that goes through throughout the book. So yeah, yeah. That's a decent one. Um, Brett, where can people, what's the best channels to get you on? Social media, Instagram, by the uh, yeah, Instagram is the one I'm most active in. I also share it, you know, cross cross platform or what have you. But if you want to see like examples and, and more visuals along with context, Instagram, just at coach underscore Brett B. Uh, website wise, artofcoaching.com, artofcoaching.com, or you can just go to myname.net, brettbartholme.net. It just depends. If you're wanting more like the online education pieces, Art of Coaching is your go-to. Um, my personal website is just a bunch of free resources and information about my speaking, coaching philosophy, all that kind of stuff. If people want to, excuse me, reach out and get in touch. And just before I let you go, there's another launch of the online course, which you, did you mention that the other day on Instagram or Twitter or something? Yeah, we'll, coming- we'll, we'll announce it soon. We're still trying to pare down everything, but it looks like it's going to be June 27th. Um, so we do a biannual launch. Um, initially we had done a beta launch to see kind of how it went and the early feedback and the feedback was overwhelming. So we're going to do another launch. It's, it's going to be open for five days. So mark your calendars for June 27th. If you want to get on the wait list for it, um, you can just go to artofcoaching.com and you download a free sample of the course. 
and that'll automatically get you on the wait list and give you an idea of, of, of what's coming. Um, it's, it's a project that's far more massive than anything I've ever done, um, both in scale and the amount of time, effort, and money it took. Um, and, and yeah, we had, we had a pretty, it's cool. Like you, you, we have a community of coaches that talk every Wednesday about the material. It's set up in a five week action plan format. So it's not one of those things that you just sit there and like sludge your way through. Uh, you know, most of the videos are 10 to 15 minutes long. It gives people an archetype cheat sheet, uh, influence tactics that are research, uh, have over 30 years of research that can help guide your communication. Um, and then it has two field guides that basically extract content from the course and the book and help you use it operationally with yourself or staff. So artofcoaching.com, June 27th, that will be out. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Brett. So massive thanks to Brett for giving up his time on a bank holiday to, uh, to speak to me and even with a couple of technical hitches, uh, we managed to get it done and uh, I really appreciate Brett's time to know how busy a guy he is. So massive thanks also to Fatigue Science, Valve Performance and Forstex for sponsoring this episode today. Got some really interesting guests coming up over the next couple of weeks, so make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and they will get downloaded automatically uh, on a Thursday morning UK time when they are released. So thanks again for your support and I will speak to you next week.